Blog Talk Radio. Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to a special Tuesday edition of Gecko Nation Radio. Uh, Today is January 7, 2014. It's a great honor to have one of the world's most integral boa constrictor breeders and enthusiasts with us tonight. Mr. Jeff Rohn of the Boa File has been working with boas for nearly three decades. He has some of the most amazing morphs. Um, You can check out his Facebook page, uh, The Boa File, B-O-A-P-H-I-L-E. And... um, just incredible, incredible animals. Uh, I know our show focuses a lot on geckos, but it is my intent to definitely highlight just other amazing species of reptiles, amphibians, and herps, and uh, people that are working with them. Um, Another thing that I wanted to mention about Jeff is his cages and rack systems are incredible. He's probably one of the world's best rack builders and cage builders, highest quality racks. So definitely check him out on uh, on the web at the Bo- I think it's Boafile Plastics. But he'll tell us more about that when he comes on. Um, before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone that Gecko Nation Radio and Herpentine Radio have teamed up and we are basically helping to promote each other. So if you guys want to explore other areas of herpeticulture and herp radio, definitely check out Herpentine. Uh, Justin and JD do a great job and interview some very just, I don't know, amazing people in this. Um, and they're really taking their show, they've taken it very far in the two, over two years that they've been doing it. So I'm proud to help support them and um, just, a, just a great venture they're doing. Uh, I've also recently become a fan of Jason Rossi of Her Per Perret. He's doing a good job with his show as well. So check out Her Per Perret. Uh, it's another great reptile radio show out there. Um, Jason's awake and he's like in a, an awake and aware kind of guy. He knows what's uh, going on in the world, and he definitely doesn't hold back and share some very interesting, sometimes controversial topics, but things that really will wake you up about uh, what's really going on in the world. So um, I like to follow his posts on Facebook. Uh, as you guys know, we, I recently did a contest for uh, basically to help uh, share and uh, get awareness about the Gecko Nation Radio Facebook page. We haven't set up our website yet, and we'll be doing that soon. But until that starts, I'd like to really uh, try to get as much traffic or as much people to know about the, the Facebook page as possible. Today, Facebook basically hides your posts unless you're paying for them. And, you know, in order to get people to follow you or to know what's going on, you really got to make an effort to motivate people to check them out. So I ran a contest and uh, got some people that definitely put the effort in to share the page and like the posts. And I put the names of the winners or the people that contributed their time to that in, in a random name generator. And the winner of that contest is Miss Brooke Pulaski. And if you don't know who Brooke is, she's the one that's making everybody those amazing banners. So great job, great work on that, Brooke, and congratulations on winning the contest. I'll post a video later uh, today or tomorrow of the actual con- of the, um, 
the random name generator thing. Um, GNR would not be possible without without its great sponsors, everybody. Please support them. Um, I'd also, you know, just like to remind everyone, uh, AB Dragons, number one, it gives a discount to Gecko Nation Radio listeners. Definitely take advantage of that. Go to checkout when you place your order. They sell FlexWatt. They sell Dubia roaches, uh, highest quality Dubia, and use the word Gecko at checkout. You're going to get 5% off your order. All right? Um, and the same goes for the other sponsors. Mention that you're a listener of the show, and they're going to take care of you. Um, let's see. What else do I want to mention to you guys? Uh, that's it, but definitely check these, these sponsors out. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by abdragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt Reptile Heat Tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www. Dot rainbowmealworms.net Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or Message me on Facebook, and I'll put you in touch with the owner. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. All right, everybody, we are back. And uh, one last thing before we get started. I want to also mention that we have a new sponsor to our show, and that is Thad from Ohio Gecko. Ohio Gecko is now a sponsor of Gecko Nation Radio, and uh, Thad also runs the Gecko Forums. Uh, besides breeding amazing leopard gecko morphs and fat tails, uh, in, in fact, you guys can check out his website at ohiogecko.com. He's got some new fat tail morphs that are exclusive to his collection, uh, the Starburst, and uh, with the leopard geckos, he's got some really reduced pattern uh, max snows that are coming out incredible. Uh, so definitely take a look at what he's working on and check out this. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Gecko Forums is the most extensive database 
of Leopard Gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Okay, everybody, that's the end of the plugs, and I just want to jump right into the show and waste no more time, and I'm going to go ahead and welcome Mr. Jeff Rohn from the Boa File. Welcome, uh, Jeff. You're live on Gecko Nation Radio. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. My name is actually Jeff Ronnie. Oh, I'm sorry, Jeff. I forgive you. <laughs> Boa also, people know uh, that. <laughs> Bo, yeah, gecko people don't. <laughs> That's right. It's Ronnie, well, just like the first Well, name. you know what? For the people that don't know about you, and you are very, very well known in the world of boas, and I have a lot of friends that are into boas, and when I said you were coming on, they were like, oh, wow, Jeff's coming on. That's awesome. Um, for people in the gecko world, Please, Jeff, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing over the last 30-plus years. Well, I, I guess I got my first pair of boas in 1984. Acquired a acquired a pretty good-sized boa, about a 7-footer, from a, a, a guy uh, who had kept it and didn't want to didn't want to keep it because it was really light, and his other boas were were really dark, which are the ones he preferred, so he um, got rid of this light one, which I got. I said about trying to figure out what sex it was, and uh, this is before I knew anyone who bred any kind of reptiles, and I just figured, well, why not try to make them? (laughs) As a kid, my mom had bred a number of uh, species of dogs or breeds of dogs, and I thought, well, my baby, I can breed boa constrictors. So I figured out that it was a female because uh, boas are supposed to have spurs, and I couldn't even see them on her. They were so buried. And just looked for what I thought might be a male and looked in uh, some local newspapers and ended up, when I was visiting my grandmother one uh, one summer, finding an ad for a six-foot boa. I went and looked at it, and I could see its spurs as plain as day, so I thought, I'll bet you this one's a male. I got it and put them together, and it was probably eight months later I ended up with babies, and uh, and that's where I got my start. Wow. What did that uh, light boa turn out to be, any kind of like a hypo or anything? No, just two two normal boas. The light one was a, I would classify as a pastel, um, mm-hmm. But it was more more like your kind of typical Colombians were that were imported at that time. She was uh, the fellow I bought her bought her from. I got her from him in '86, and he had bought her as a baby in '76. So she was a bicentennial baby, an import, mm-hmm. and uh, she was eight years old when I'd gotten her. He'd raised her from the baby, and the other one, I'm not sure of the the age on the male but uh, probably about the same age, uh, maybe a little younger. But, uh, no, it wasn't anything special as far as being a mutation at all. Okay. Um, when I when I look at your Facebook page, I am just in awe of, of some of the animals that you're working on. And I guess over the past, uh, I guess we'd say the past five years or so, uh, ball pythons have really become very popular 
in herpetoculture. And uh, from my perspective, and I may be wrong about this, but you can elaborate probably. From my perspective, it seems that over the last few years, boas have kind of, um, well, actually over the, you know, not, not the last two years, but before that, boas were kind of taking a back seat. But now it seems that a lot of new morphs are popping up, new special lines are just really coming to the forefront and becoming popular. Uh, would you say that boa constrictors and boa morphs are now going to become like the new ball pythons in the market? <laughs> well, that's funny you should say that because the ball pythons were the new boa constrictor phase at the time uh, when ball pythons came onto the scene and became more pop mm -hmm. started to become more popular. When you'd go mm -hmm. to uh, the Daytona Snake Party or any of the big shows, the boas were probably 60% of what you would see at reptile shows. And then the ball pythons started to gain on them, and the mutations that were in ball pythons were just crazy compared to what were in boas. So there was a huge surge toward ball pythons uh, for mm -hmm. many reasons. And then um, uh, more recently, because, you know, I'm sure that there will be lots more ball python things that come out, they really have kind of hit their peak as far as the number of different mutations that have come on the scene. I don't know how many there are, hundreds, literally. And yeah. so I think that a huge majority of what's going to be there have already been discovered in, uh, in ball pythons. And there'll be more in the future, but in the boa world, because boas grow much more slowly and they're much more diverse in terms of how they look, it's a lot more difficult to identify a mutation in boas than it is in ball pythons. So it's going to take a lot longer time for the, the whole mutation aspect and potential to play out to the point where it's holy macro, we've, you know, we've hit almost everything that we're going to hit kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so it's building back up. There's a lot more interest coming back toward boas, especially because it looks like we potentially will uh, finally get the, uh, the pressures off of us from the government uh, when yep. U.S. Arc is successful in winning our suit. And um, so there's a lot of excitement about boas and, um, and the things that are happening in boas right now. I like to hear that. And uh, as you know, Gecko Nation Radio supports U.S. ARC, and um, you are on the board of directors at U.S. ARC, and uh, congratulations on that position. Um, Thank you. Uh, would you like to say anything about that, maybe a little bit? Well, I'm one of two charter members of the board um, mm -hmm. from the beginning, and it's not because I'm not because I'm special, just because from from the get-go when we first realized there was any kind of a threat, I took it seriously, and I guess there weren't a lot of people that took it seriously at the time, but I was one of those who did, and mm -hmm. uh, so I've been kind of involved in the decision-making and and uh, kind of help, helping to steer where we're going here with with U.S. ARC, which um, uh, looks like we've we've done everything pretty. Uh, Pretty good. Accomplished most of the things we've tried to accomplish in the timing that they needed to be done. And uh, this most recent event with us filing suit against uh, Fish and Wildlife Service uh, is basically on the timeline that it needed to be in order to have the maximum potential for success. And uh, people that are critical of it thought that it should have been filed years ago, but Lots of people don't understand the process and uh, what has to be done in setting up to do something like this and to do it in a way that makes sense uh, legally, 
and uh, to maximize your potential for success. And so we've done uh, done what had to be done to set us up for this uh, eventual, uh, what we predict to be success, in the timing that it needs to be done. I'm very glad to have been involved in it uh, so far and uh, look forward to continuing to be involved in the future. I, I try to look in the positives of everything, Jeff. And, you know, while this, these, these threats to our hobby are definitely a huge negative, uh, in, in a sense they can uh, not only make us have a little bit more gratitude for what we have, I believe, but in a lot of senses they can make us come together for the common good. And um, I'm confident that that's what that's going to do, that that's what it's doing now. And uh, would, you, would you say that you see that from your perspective as well? Yeah, I think I think the vast majority of people are <clears throat> generally supportive of US Arc even if they don't understand everything completely. There are a few people that are not supportive at all and those uh, you know, I don't know those people. And I I'm, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking that they're just not the team player type people. They're just the type of people that are more likely to want to complain about everything. And uh, from the very beginning, we were reaching out, trying to bring people in who had varying uh, opinions and uh, thoughts about the direction and the way we ought to go. And uh, we just brought in everybody that was willing to work with us and uh, tried to make sure that we all uh, benefited and that the Reptile Nation as a whole benefited as much as is humanly possible. And uh, unfortunately, some people were never willing to, to reach out and uh, and work with us but but plenty of people have been and so we've we've uh, really built quite an organization that's really taken the um, uh, taken the world by storm as far as our, our success and what we've done uh, legislatively regulatory on the regulatory front and uh, on a local and a federal basis and uh, it would be nice if those people that were that were more critical were um, we're doing something to help from another angle, if you will, instead mm-hmm. of shooting the only one that really is out in front trying to help all of us. And so that's the only frustration in, in uh, people that are not participating, that, that they would go out of their way to, to harm us, which ultimately harms them. But um, we go on and uh, continue to do what we do and not answer every uh, ridiculous um Accusation, criticism levied by by people who um, really are are not invested in the success of uh, the overall goal of what we're trying to do. Now, I'm not really a spokesperson per se uh, for U.S. Arc. Phil Goss is our really our only uh, public spokesman, and uh, for obvious reasons, as you listen to me babble about it for a little bit, I'm not very well spoken about it. But but at any rate, I'm you're doing um, fine. You're doing fine, Jeff. But at any rate, um, I'm really personally grateful to the thousands of people that help support uh, U.S. Arc. I feel personally indebted to those people. Um, I'm working just like anyone else who's purchased a membership, donated an animal, donated a product at a reptile show for an auction. I'm just kind of in awe of all these people that I see from my perspective as helping me and my family maintain my way of life and, and and my hobby, which is under assault. And uh, I personally really, really appreciate the uh, the support that we get from literally thousands of people across the country. Thank you. 
Yes, and, and I think that's going to continue to grow. And, and you mentioned a little bit about some people not being team players. I, I try to adopt the philosophy, if you, don't, if you don't want to help a cause or a person or, uh, or, an, or an organization, at the very least, don't hurt it, okay? Um, and that's, right. that's kind of goes back to an old Buddhist philosophy. You know, if you're, if you're not going to help someone, at least don't hurt them. So I, I, I like that philosophy. And um, I think the support for US, U.S. ARC is going to continue to grow. I like the fact that this lawsuit was, was, uh, was, was done because, in a way, it sets a precedent where, okay, you know, now we're not just going to sit back and just, you know, go through the motions. We're actually, you know, here to defend ourselves more or less. And, I mean, they, they, they're not going to respond to anything else. I guess in a sense, I mean, but I don't, I'm not also very knowledgeable about how um, you know these legal matter matters work. But I think a lot of people in the community like the like the fact that that's been done. Now it's just uh, making sure that the the money gets there to help uh, continue the effort. And um, I really like what's going on on Facebook with people, you know, doing the special auctions for the U.S. Arc, raising the money. That's great. In fact, uh, I'm going to try to do what I can with my show here and my sphere of influence in the future and see what we can do, put together. Um, you know, these things aren't easy, but every, every single, any little bit will help us. So, you know, that's, that's important. Uh, another issue I see in the, in, in the community today is uh, uh, reptile auctions. Now, I think reptile auctions are fine, especially when they're being used to, you know, raise money for specific funds. But I think some people are having issues with uh, auctions and, you know, being done on a large scale. Uh, do you have any comments on that, Jeff? Well, <clears throat> I think generally, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a bad cold. I saw, you, for, saw your picture shoveling uh, out in the ice storm. Yeah, it's been cold. The last, uh, <laughs> last two nights it's been about 20 below uh, oh, here, oh. which uh, most people have, have no idea what that even feels like to be in 20 below temperatures. Yeah, but uh, auction-wise, auctions for causes are, are always a good idea. People are always going to get bargain basement, unbelievable deals on those kind of auctions. But auctions where people are willy-nilly selling animals, that pretty much occurs with not your cutting-edge animals, but your more bread-and-butter stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't see that as being a big problem. It's It's harmful. For people that are only making bread and butter stuff, for sure, to be sure. And so for most larger breeders, they don't go out of their way to sell to the people that are doing the blow up, blow the stuff out the door auctions. That's usually the little guys who are selling to those people. And then the stuff gets blown out the door at bargain basement prices. So it's really... Most of the time, it's not your larger breeders that are causing those kind of uh, those kind of issues. At least that's from my perspective. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's probably not not a great thing that that a lot of people do a lot of auctions. Usually, they're some of the bigger breeders that do it, and there are a few. They're typically auctioning off things that are not their pet projects. They might be yours, but they're not theirs. So they're they're willing to harm a project that are not they're not uh, really a key person on anymore but uh, so i see that right. as a little bit unfriendly a little bit unfriendly uh, mm-hmm. especially to people that were your customers that may have bought those animals from you 
for bigger bucks when it was a key project for them. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, what are you going to do? It's free country. People can do what they want. And uh, you can you can vote for or against people that do that with your dollars. And that is by not buying from those people when they do those auctions or not buying the higher-end animals from those people if it disgusts you that they're doing auctions. You know, that's that's reality, but most people won't do that. They'll they'll just complain. That's <laughs> just human nature, I guess. Yeah, I made a point on my last episode on Sunday, um, just, just a couple days ago. I, I basically wanted to make the point that um, one of the last things that we have that we are in control of is, you know, the direction that we send our money. And I feel that we should send our money in the direction where it's going to do most good and to the people that are doing the most good out there. And, um, I mean, that's something I'm really, really passionate about. I try to seek out the best people in this and get my animals from the best people. And um, I will go out of my way to to find a a book at the corner bookshop as, as opposed to buying it online. And, and stuff like that. And I try to support my local businesses and things. So, I mean, that's, a, that's an overall philosophy. It's not always the most convenient way to get what you need in life, but I feel it's the better way to do it. And I hope other people will adopt that philosophy because that's the way it used to be. And uh, we've lost that over the last decade or so in a lot of cases. So, right, um, right. Yeah, and um, you know, I, one of the things that troubles me sometimes is our is the the, herpetocult- the world of herpetoculture and herpetoculturists and how we appear to the outside world. And um, a lot of times on Facebook and on social media forums and stuff, we don't always appear like responsible, mature, uh, you know, keepers of these uh, exotic animals. And I and I I feel that the I fear that the public, the general public opinion of us isn't what it needs to be. And uh, do you have any opinions on, on what you see from your perspective about our appearance to the outside world? Well, we're kind of in a unique business. It's um, uh, what is it analogous to? It's sort of, sort of like we're not, uh, we're not people that own gun shops that really cater to our local community and people that are interested in guns in our in our particular community we are we're really national and international gun shops although we're not selling guns we're selling leopard geckos and leopard gecko morphs and or boa constrictors and boa constrictor morphs and we could sell to anybody in the US and get them product the next day so consequently businesses all over the country instead of People being able to work with each other on a more friendly basis, owners of all these individual thousands of little businesses, everyone is a competitor of everyone else. Mm-hmm. That just ha- brings with it its own set of of issues and problems uh, because a lot of people don't play nice, <laughs> including with their own customers, uh, which is which is unfortunate. That's not not the way. I try to run mine, and uh, you know I'm hoping that people that get boas for me are successful with them, and and uh, encourage them and compliment them when I see them making cool animals that are grandkids and great grandkids of animals that they got for me. It's exciting when they do that, but not everybody yeah. looks at it that way, and uh, it's 
just the nature of the beast and the way that it it is going to be, unfortunately. And that's part of why it's amazing that we've gotten together with U.S. Arc and the unity that we've had is because everybody is, they're all competitors with one another. And uh, while on a face-to-face business basis, a lot of people don't really get along with one another because somebody else beat them out of a deal on something, we've all kind of come together uh, on this common cause, and that is protecting, uh, protecting our right to be able to keep and breed and work with the animals that, that we enjoy. So it's an ongoing thing. It's a good thing to talk about. Um, and I guess it, it's a good thing if people tend to spend their dollars with people that they know have the more uh, friendly relationship with others. And mm-hmm. the person that has the relationship is being cutthroat and unfriendly to their to their customers and to others um, should be the people that you know you, you should shy away from from dealing with, and that's regardless of the type of animals that they work with. You know, who wants to uh, have a close relationship with somebody that's got a reputation for you know being really cutthroat? Mm-hmm. But that's that's the way it is. <laughs> some people are, and some people aren't. Some people yeah. are friendly, and uh, more than happy. I, I mean, I direct people to other boa breeders. A lot of times, if they call and ask about something, it's not something I work with. I'll say, "Well, have you checked with Rob Tudahope?" Uh, where some breeders would never refer anyone to anyone else for anything, <laughs> which is uh, really it's unfriendly. And uh, yeah. when you direct someone, a customer that's calling you, to somebody else, uh, when I do it, I would only direct them to somebody that I thought was an ethical uh, person in business in the same way that I that I am, that would treat them yeah. fairly honestly before and after the sale. And uh, so hopefully more and more people do it that way and uh, think about it before they spend their dollars with someone. It's funny you say that because... Uh when I first got into, I've been, I'm 37 years old, and I've been keeping reptiles uh, since I'm eight years old. Started out with anoles and whatnot, but uh, over the last five, four to five years, I've really uh, decided to take my my love for leopard geckos into, you know, the upper, the mid, mid-scale breeding range and make a little business out of it. It kind of turned into a business on its own because I breed so many geckos, I can't keep them all. i got to sell them, so it kind of just happened. <laughs> so um, I kind of... From the beginning, I had the philosophy where I always went out of my way to give, show gratitude for the for the good breeders that I got my initial stock from, and they were I always sought out the best, like Ron Tremper and Marsha McGinnis, um, people like that, Matt Baranak, and you know just really good breeders to get my my founding stock from. And um, I make a regular point to help promote them, and I it doesn't hurt my business at all. Like it's not like I'm losing business to them because. You know, I in turn gain business from them as well, and we kind of, you know, help each other. And I don't view them as competition per se. Uh, yeah, we're all selling geckos. Some of us have some of the same things, but there are differences between the projects we're working on. And uh, I like the fact that some of us, and it doesn't happen with all of us, Jeff, as you know, but some of us can work like that in a sort of chamber of commerce way. And that, when 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 you can find that with with certain people, I think it's very special. Um, Another thing I notice on on Facebook per se is a lot of people 
lot of good people in this are doing their best to do the right thing for the hobby and definitely try to get themselves in a better position and uh, be productive and um, be positive. And then there's people that will just continually try to tear them down. And um, I hate that kind of cyber bullying mentality. And um, I, I created my own group where it's not allowed at all, and it's, so far we've had no problems. But I think more people on Facebook that run these groups need to uh, be strong and put an end to the negativity once and for all and really uh, you know, hold the troublemakers accountable for their actions and boot them. <laughs> That's my opinion. So, right. But I don't know. Right. It's like when somebody posts, well, Nothing. You, keep your mouth shut. you keep your mouth shut. You don't say anything. <laughs> right. That's just, but there are, there are plenty of people who can't help themselves. They have to say, oh, well, I, I don't like those, or I think that's, I think that's ugly. <laughs> you, you if you don't have anything nice to say, you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. That's so that's true. Crazy. Actually, I lied because that just happened the other day in my group. Somebody posted, and it was the first, I guess, incident we've had, uh, somebody posted a picture of a gecko that won a prize at an expo. It was the best in show, so to speak, and uh, it was a beautiful gecko. Uh, nobody could argue with that. But one person made it a point to say, I can't believe that, that one. It's, it's, I forget what his comment was. Something that, that's, that's ugly. I can't believe that one. And, of course, it started a little bit of a problem in that, in that, comp- in that thread. And, ugh, you know, but it just goes to show you, they, they, they show themselves, the troublemakers show themselves sooner or later. And at least I know now that you know he's on strike one one more time. He's out. I don't. I don't. I don't play around in my group. But uh, you know, it's it's that's what it is. You know, if you don't have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. I like that. Um, one of the things that's that you're very one of the other things you're very well known for, Jeff, is your craftsman craftsmanship with your your caging and your racks. And um, just on, on behalf of Calorica, I'd like to thank you for being. Um, for being faithful to the FlexMod product. But your racks are incredible. And um, would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, what makes you get involved in constructing your own racks and and, uh, what makes your racks uh, so good and why they're so loved by everybody? Well, let me give you my history with FlexWad first. Um, Okay. Probably 20, literally 25 years ago, I was talking to Rob Tudahope from uh, from Iowa, and mm-hmm. uh, he said, "Have you uh, have you ever used FlexWatt?" And I said, "Well, what's FlexWatt? I've never heard of FlexWatt because I was using uh, heat cable in my cages, okay. and uh, these were melamine cages that I made myself." He said, "Well, they sell it at uh, they sell it at Menards. That's a local chain, uh, like a big box store, like uh, Home Depot." Mm-hmm. Sell it at Menards for subfloor heat, and you use that under your cage, and uh, it's a subtle heat, and it goes right through the floor of the cage. I went to Menards, I bought some, and uh, and I used some of the original material that I bought from Menards, which was the original FlexWatt uh, subfloor heat. Uh, I probably used it for 15 years before I retired the last of it, only because I retired the cages that they were in. Uh, but I'd used it without fail for for just many many years and it's just uh it's just such a stable product and i've used many many miles of uh of flex since then since i went into the the cage business uh 13 
14, 14 years ago now, uh, my mm-hmm. automatic um, thing to do at the beginning when I started was planning on using FlexWatt to heat heat my cages. And we don't use the FlexWatt readily available to most um, most reptile FlexWatt distributors because it's higher wattage than is necessary to heat our cages. So we use the, a lower wattage FlexWatt, which they do sell through reptile distributors, but uh, not a lot of them carry it. Um, mm-hmm. So we started using it in cages. I've been using it ever since. And then uh, when we uh, started building racks with uh, FlexWatt belly heat, after a customer requested you know, and harassed me about making a, a, a rack that used belly heat instead of back heat, he uh, just <laughs> rode me about it. And he said, well, I know that you can figure out a way how to do it. And uh, I just thought it was too complicated until one day I sat down and thought it through and figured out how to do it. And uh, then I switched to using a four-inch FlexWatt recessed into the shelf for our rack systems and talked to the, the technical, uh, the engineer at Calorique or FlexWatt about manufacturing some FlexWatt specifically just for us because the 8 watt per foot I knew was higher wattage than we needed for our racks. Mm-hmm. So I placed my first order. I had to order 10 rolls to get it. And yep. uh, my first order of 5 watt per foot, flex watt, and they've been supplying me with it ever since. And that's actually available through your reptile flex watt distributors. Uh, whether or not they actually carry it is another thing, but they can get it. And um, yep. that's what we use exclusively in our rack systems. And it just does not have the potential of getting anywhere near as hot as the other ones, the other FlexWatts do in a closed situation. So my philosophy is use as much as you need uh, wattage-wise, and there's no reason to go higher. And a good thermostat controls your temperature and keeps it, keeps it in check. So I would always use the lowest wattage heater uh, possible for any application. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I recently so, um, thought I thought it would be a good idea to make a smaller uh, model besides the three-inch uh, six-watt, and I recommended to Calorique that they make a two-inch uh, four-watt for like six-quart tubs. So we're going to see if that uh, if that's something that um, will be popular in the in the years to come. Um, already being sold quite a bit up in Canada. So um, we, we've added the six-inch model, a six-inch line as well. But no, I understand. And, you know, a lot of the, over the years, people have used FlexWatt, and it's, it's actually, they, they, they use it incorrectly, a lot of the people in the reptile world. While a lot of people are great breeders, they're great rack builders, they're not always great electricians or electrically inclined. And um, one of the things Calorique's noticed is a lot of people don't, uh, understand the the usefulness of the calorie uh, crimping tool. <clears throat> Do you have any specific uh, advice as to how you make your connections with the FlexWatt, Jeff? Well, yeah, we we use the official crimping tool. It's a specific tool that that uh, crimps those little alligator jaws properly into the FlexWatt uh, without fail. And as long as the cord doesn't get yanked hard, that will that connection will work indefinitely. Yep. Or uh, fifteen years is about the max that I've run them before I retired those cages. I still have that 
that flex wad. I actually pulled it off of the cages and rolled it up, and I have it in the bottom of my toolbox in my garage. I don't know why, but it's but I still have it. <laughs> I was looking for I was looking for something uh, out there today and pulled that drawer open and saw that flex wad in there again. <laughs> Where it's and that's been back a when they were time. using uh, the, is that when they were back when they were using the plain copper bus bars? Uh, I think most of this stuff was the uh, it's aluminum foil I think or an aluminum over the uh, over the tin. Oh, okay. So that's the silver. Switched. Most of it is yeah, most of it's silver. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's cool. Uh, it's it's an amazing product. I still have some that's going back, yeah, probably almost 15 years. And uh, while it's not in use right now, they're, it was working up until a year, couple of years ago. I'm sure it'll work right now if I plug it in. But, you know, they're my older cages that I, you know, just haven't had a use for. But, uh, it, yeah, it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm very, very happy with it. And there's some really exciting things coming down the line uh, with FlexWatch, some new innovations over the next couple of years that, uh, just people are going to really love, um, and they're starting to bring their 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 line of finished heat mats now to market, which is uh, which is long overdue. Uh, you know, no, it, Calvary didn't realize there was such a huge market for finished heat mats, so uh, well, we we got them thinking in that direction now, which is cool. But um, but yeah, what kind of sizes and and models of cages and, and racks do you make, uh, Jeff? Well, pretty much cage-wise, we make two-foot, three-foot, and four-foot cages. Uh, people can order cages with expandable ends so that they can be connected together to make a longer cage if they wish, which sometimes people do do that, mm -hmm. where you can connect two four-footers and make an eight-foot cage. Uh, we've okay. had people buy two four-footers and a corner unit, which connects the two four-footers in a corner together. So basically, if you measure if you measure along the back wall, you have two six foot long walls at the back, and uh, that that's basically what we do cage wise and two heights, eleven and a half inch high, and seventeen and a half inch high. It's a long story how we got the odd height, which I won't bore you with, but we're stuck <laughs> with it because we've made so many thousands and thousands of them at those two standard heights. And then rack wise, okay. we make everything okay. from your standard six-quart uh, shoebox up to uh, a ballroom tub, which is uh, f for the largest ball pythons that have ever lived, or, you know, maybe a five-foot bow would do well in there, too. Mm -hmm. That's a drawer that's a 41-quart drawer, and it's almost three feet long. Uh, that's the largest tub that we do, the largest one that we will ever do. The way, the way, our, you, racks um, built, the way our racks are built with each shelf being a complete sheet, of uh, three eighths inch thick polyethylene, and the walls being the thick polyethylene, and the backs being covered uh, to make something with a larger tub would just be ridiculously expensive. So, for larger animals, we recommend our cages, and uh, we won't be doing a four foot drawer that that pulls out. It would just be cost prohibitive. And um, all the flex lot that when you run it belly heat wise. Uh, you route it into the into the actual shelves, right? On the racks, it's routed into the shelf. It's routed about halfway through the shelf is recessed or routed out mm -hmm. to accept the flex wad, which snaps down into the shelf. Uh, in addition to that, the drawers typically have a little 
ridge all the way around the, the outer perimeter that the drawer rides on, and then the bottom of the drawer is raised up from that ridge just a little bit. Mm-hmm. That creates a little air pocket, so it's not, not ru- definitely not sliding on the flex wad itself because the flex wad is recessed into the shelf. The drawer slides over it. Uh, it can touch it, but it doesn't in places, but it doesn't rub on it. Uh, like and that pinch just that, over a shelf, like some people some people make their shelves or their racks, so that the drawers slide directly on the flex wand. It's pinched between the shelf and the drawer, and that's that's not the proper way to run any kind of an electrical device. No, and that's that was my next question to you. Is uh, a lot of people out there buy you know loose flex wand, 20 feet, 100 feet at a time. I see them on YouTube showing people how to make these racks. They don't have the routing equipment or, you know, the tools to make a groove for FlexWatt. And then over time, their, their shelves are sagging, and there's, you could see them struggling to pull their tubs out. And you know that that tub is, sque- is squeezing and creating pressure points on FlexWatt. And Calorie, of course, does not recommend this type of application. Um, Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about what, what kind of problems could result because of that? Well, there's a lot of problems. Uh, it's an electrical device, and you can't, it's just like you wouldn't lay an electric cord across the floor of your your shop and drive a forklift over it and have people stepping on it all day long. Right. Um, uh, electrical devices need to be protected from that sort of abuse and that sort of friction. And you could wear through them and cause shorts, and there's just a number of problems. Also, another thing that can happen is they can overheat. Uh, people that, that do, just as you described, without routing it in the shelf, will tend to just order um, probably a FlexWatt that's much higher wattage than is necessary for the application. Um, but they haven't thought it through. Because if you haven't thought through how you're going to build your rack so that your FlexWatt is recessed into a shelf and you have a nice little air pocket in there, you sure haven't thought through which FlexWatt was probably probably be the best one for you to use for your application. Mm-hmm. So there, there are a number of issues that just kind of can, uh, can build. And then if they buy, if they're cutting all those corners, they probably are just going to put a rheostat on instead of a thermostat. And rheostats yep. are inherent for failing in the on position, yep. full on. And it's going to fail on the f- full on position. It's going to get uh, very, very hot maybe not hot enough to be a life-threatening issue for people because that, that generally doesn't happen because the, the plastic melts before it has a chance of getting hot enough to cause a fire. But, and then the, the connection just quits and it can't heat anymore once the plastic melts. But uh, hot enough that it's life-threatening for the animals. And mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's people's nature, I guess, is to, to save a buck, cut a corner. And for people that aren't, interested in pinching every penny possible but are wise enough to think about uh, what are the ramifications of what I'm going to be doing, what's the safe thing to do for my animals, and what in the long run is going to be best for the animals and for my setup, uh, they'll have the wisdom of looking for usually a professionally built system to house their animals in. Some people can build what I build but not very many. Yeah, and I know I, it, I cringe sometimes when I see these videos, and, and, I, and it's a shame when the FlexWatt does fail under those conditions. 
these people are always the first people to go on the forums or on Facebook and start bashing FlexWatt. Oh, the FlexWatt melted and burned, and they always say it burned, but meanwhile, it's basically doing what it's supposed to do by melting and canceling out, so it prevents right. a fire or something. Um, that's the safety mechanism, everybody. So if you hook it up wrong and, and it melts on you, be glad that it did that because that's what it's supposed to do. But anyway, um, over it's frustrating for me because I usually have to respond to these things, and it's always the same story. You know, the end. It's it's a user error. Um, but before before I get to it, it's always a bunch of flexwatt bashing. You know, and it's it's terrible. Um, <laughs> I, I've I've seen it all with that. Um, but I think. If people could, if we could come up with an easy way for people to uh, route it in their cells, and I, and not everybody's skilled with a router, but uh, I came up with the idea of using an electric plane to at least get it a quarter of an inch down. And if you're steady with the electric plane, you put a guide there. You can create a three-inch channel uh, easily with one or two passes, and you know, create like a quarter-inch deep uh, channel. And I try to tell people to at least do that if they can. Um, recently, someone that I know had an issue where they uh, bought a professional rack and they had the probe placed correctly on the it was on the on the lower shelf and their their FlexWatt wasn't heating all the way up to the end it was it was steady on the top but then when it got to the end there was an issue um, now I know in some case most cases this is usually because the connectors aren't cr uh, crimped correctly um, have you ever seen that uh, happen I'm sure it doesn't happen with your racks but um, in people that are doing it themselves. Do you have any advice for people like that, Jeff? Well, you can crimp it yourself with the, uh, with the crimping tool. Uh, you need to crimp onto virgin, uh, virgin, I don't know what that strip is called, but uh, rather than re-crimping over something that had been crimped on before, you definitely want the right. best connection possible. I haven't mm -hmm. seen FlexWatt that didn't, that didn't work throughout the entire length unless it was interrupted by being cut, uh, which I, we don't do that. <laughs> we don't cut the flex wad in the middle of, uh, in the, middle of the, the roll anywhere. We use full-length pieces without joints. Um, so I'm unfamiliar with it not working all the way up to the end. The ends sometimes are not as warm as, as the middle. But uh, but it does work all the way up to the end, and we uh, we of course stand be behind our product, uh, and all of our FlexWatt is replaceable, if need be. And we probably had I probably had ten times over uh, 14 years where people needed to replace FlexWatt, maybe maybe more than that, maybe a dozen times. But in uh, in almost every instance, it's where somebody had just moved. It's kind of a familiar story. You know, I ask when somebody says they have a heater isn't working, and I ask, well, have you just recently moved? Well, yeah, I did move, and how did you know? <laughs> because sometimes when you're moving, somebody will accidentally step on a cord that's attached to a FlexWatt heater, and nobody thinks anything of it, or maybe the person that's helping didn't say anything about stepping on the cord, and you didn't know that there could be an issue. And obviously, if a end of a cord is pulled out of its connection, it's not going to work any longer. And that's not the fault of the heater. That's just a human error that caused a, a problem with the uh, with the heater not working. Right. So we have had a number of times where people have ordered another heater and just pulled the, uh, pulled the other one, old one off and stuck a new one on, and, and then they're back in business until they move again. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Well, I know Calorique is looking to acquire, um, uh, and I was going to ask you about this. Maybe uh, we can uh, acquire a small sample rack from you some sometime because I'd like the technicians to be able to have a have one to uh, to do some testing with and uh, stuff like that. So I may I may yeah. uh, contact you soon about that. But, um, yeah, we need to we need to do that at some point. I mean, even if I just supplied them with a shelf, that they could pop the FlexWatt in and uh, and look at it that way. Yeah, that would be cool. And we're also um, we're also putting together a new website, uh, a link on the well, it's going to be on the Calorie website, but there's going to be a, a full page devoted to the reptile line. And um, we're asking if our distributors could give us a uh, um, a testimonial per se that we could post there, and we'll include your your business links as well. If you'd like to do that, uh, you're welcome to, uh, Jeff. Um, sure. This way, you know, people can find you as well, you know, get your link from there too. But um, other than that, we're coming towards the end of the show, and uh, I'd like to talk just a little bit about some of these amazing boa constrictor morphs that you are pioneering yourself, and um, you know them better than I do. I, I have to tell you that I am actually very interested in acquiring some really nice, uh, I'd like to get a 1.2 or a 1.3 of uh, a really nice line of Surinams. Uh, but I'm, I'm becoming increasingly more impressed with some of these jungle stripes and anneries that you're working with. And, uh, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about some of your special bow projects, that would be great. Well, we have another number of projects that I'm, got it off the driver's seat is the right term, but I'm sort of the, the lead guy on um, Key West boas. There are quite a few people that have Key West boas at this point, and they're they're uh, not originally from Key West, but uh, my original animal that I obtained, uh, I think it was five years ago now, after seeing a picture of him online and hoping that it was genetic, uh, he came from a, a lady I got him from, and she lived in Key West. So I call it a Key West boa. That's one of my sort of key key no pun intended, one of my key projects, and we're making a lot of different Key West combo uh, mutations, breeding them into BPIT positives, uh, sharp albinos, breeding them with motleys, with jungles, and this year we made Key West motley hypos, which are just basically insane, uh, very, very red, and a number of other a number of other things. Um, that one is growing in popularity and uh, one that I think is going to really show us a lot of uh, crazy color as far as uh, red is concerned in the future. But my, my big one right now is the Labyrinth and, and Crystal Boa project, which are farm-bred Colombians, uh, Colombian imports, the original Labyrinth Boa and his uh, genetically proven sister, which is the crystal boa, which we believe to be a super form of the labyrinth, came from Colombia. And the labyrinth is, it it looks like a T-positive in that it doesn't have any true black on it, but it's definitely not a T-positive. Um, extremely washed out, a lot of pale pastels and pinks on most of them, uh, really irregular pattern. They have a very, very faint mustache, which is very unusual in boa constrictors. Have not made a crystal boa 
myself, uh, the only one in existence is this, this one female, an import. And she, as a baby, was pure white with a very, very pale pattern, like you would see in some uh, some ball python leucistics retain pattern as uh, as babies. So this is a type of leucistic, not what people would call pure leucistic because it's not pure white, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's white with a fa- faint pale pattern. And as it's gotten older, she's more turned more peachy, and now she's more yellow. Now she's about four and a half feet uh, and still retains a the pattern that she did as a youngster, which is not a normal pattern. But it'll, mm-hmm. be, a, it'll be a couple more years before we prove that the super labyrinth is and does make uh, this other form of, uh, of, of leucistic or a uh, crystal boa, which potentially is a can be a pure white boa that maybe we can still work something on because the pattern is retained. So what will a motley crystal look like? Well, we have no idea. We have no way to know. Um, but I'm looking forward to finding that out in the future. One of the one of the more revolutionary results we had this year was making a making four uh, motley labyrinths, which don't look like labyrinths and they don't look like motleys. They're virtually uh, patternless, except they look like they're completely, utterly striped. <coughs> yes, not striped, those not are striped incredible. Like, not striped like boas are normally striped. This is striped striped, like like rosy boa striped. Mm-hmm. Um, and or it's really, really uh, lacks contrast. And the pictures I take, they always show much stronger contrast because of the flash. So they're really washed out, uh, very unusual looking. And that's just basically the, the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what we're going to see in the future with the, uh, with the Labyrinth Project. You guys are just getting started with the bows, right? Pretty much with the morphs? What would you say? You guys are pretty much just getting started with the bow morphs now, I, I would think, right? Well, yeah, we're, we're well into it, but there, there are a lot of, there are a million combinations that we haven't done yet. I mean, every, yep. every um, decent-sized boa guy, <laughs> you know, with 15 pair or more uh, breeding his boas will make something next year that, that other people haven't seen before. There's just a lot of new things popping up, sort of like ball pythons were, you know, eight years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's going to take longer for for a lot of this stuff to happen because you can't, you can't have a baby boa male that's a father in a year. And in the ball python world, you can be breeding a male when it's six or eight months old, and he can, he can have offspring hatching out of the egg before he's a year old. But typically, right, right. If, you do, if you get a male boa to breed as early as anyone ever has, you know, you're going to end up with babies, if you're lucky, when that male is about two years old. Okay. And most males that are 18-month-old males aren't going to breed yet. They need to be a little older and a little bigger, a little more mature. So it takes longer for for you to uh, to get to that next level, that next combination, and it's even longer with females. Right. Is it true that males will stop growing once they're bred? Males will what? I've heard that, I don't know if it's true or not, but... 
uh, I heard I've heard that when you breed a male for its first time, they usually uh, stop growing uh, and don't you know put on as no, much no. weight. No, males no. males continue to grow throughout their lifetime. Okay. Uh, for most, for a lot of breeders like me, once you get a male to reach adult size or breedable size at about four feet or four and a half feet, there's really no reason for him to be any bigger unless you specifically right. had a really big female you didn't want to use a smaller male on, uh, which sometimes is the case. But uh, there's really no reason to get a four and a half foot male up to six feet if he's breeding and, and doing his job at three and a, or four and a half feet. Yeah, I understand that. But they will continue to grow if if you feed them enough to to allow them to grow. But I tend to back off a little bit and keep them, you know, at a uh, lean fighting weight, I'd say, so that uh, they can still do what you would like them to do, and they're perfectly healthy, but they they don't really grow very much beyond that point. Yeah, that's kind of like what we do with the leopard geckos. We don't want them too obese, and we keep them at you know, athletic fighting weight, so to speak. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, yeah, all right. Well, we're coming up on the hour, Jeff. Um, uh, I have one last question for you. Uh, do you breed any uh, surnames? I don't. I, I have some surnames. I have tried to breed surnames. Um, I have some boas that are part surname that I have bred, but I've not bred any pure surnames or pure guianas. Mm-hmm. Um, not for lack of trying. I just have not been successful with those. <laughs> okay. Can you recommend some someone that I can get a nice one point thing from? Uh, Rob Tudahope. I think I sent you his phone number. That's right, you did. <laughs> okay. I'll give him a call. That's right. Uh, there are, I, I got there are a few, few other people that have there there aren't a lot of people around with surnames anymore like, like there once was because uh so many people have gone into strictly morphs, but uh there are a few. I like the old school, the old locality stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, Jeff, listen, I really appreciate you giving, uh, giving us an hour of your time. Um, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Um, uh, please uh, take a minute to, to have any closing remarks and to give out your information to the listeners, if you will. Uh, my, uh, my BOA website is theboafile.com. The CAGE website is at boafileplastics.com. Actually, show more animals for sale currently on my Facebook page, which is uh, facebook.com/slash/theboafile. If you just do a search for the boafile on Facebook, you'll find me. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't have 5,000 likes yet, so my feelings are pretty uh, pretty hurt. But uh, <laughs> I just started at this about a month ago. So on on Facebook we had 800 likes at the beginning of December, and I'm now I think I'm over 45 or 4400. So if you haven't liked me yet, please do. <laughs> All right, we'll try to help with that if we can uh, with the show. Please, everybody, <laughs> like his page. Uh, it takes 43.99. Uh, so you you can be the lucky one to get me over 4400. That'd be cool. All right, great. Hey, Jeff, I, I wish you a lot of luck with uh, your endeavors with USR. Thank you for, for being part of the team that's going to be helping us. And uh, uh, lots of luck to you and your amazing BOA projects over the next season. I hope it goes really well for you. All right, David, thank you. All right, talk to you soon. Thanks, Jeff. 
Bye bye. Bye now. All right, everybody. Uh, it's you know it's refreshing to speak with uh, a Boa guy. Uh, we don't always uh, get that opportunity. Uh, Jeff is one of the best. He's been doing it for uh, almost three decades now. He's very very well respected and uh, just incredible, incredible animals. You guys will see him for yourself when you check out your. Oh, look at that! He just hit forty four hundred on his page. That's awesome. So we were able to help you with that, Jeff. Um, all right. Well. I guess uh, we're going to wrap it up. I, I didn't have anything else planned for tonight, and Jeff uh, wanted to give us an hour, which is awesome. I think I'll uh, I'll play the outro, and I'll come back with my closing remarks. Hang tight, everybody. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, everybody. Uh, Great episode. I want to thank everybody that's in the chat room, all my friends. I see Sean from Heavy Duty Reptiles. I see Loki Reptiles. I see Mr. Landon Allen. I see Elsa. Erica, Brooke, congratulations, Brooke, on winning the contest for Gecko Nation Radio. And, of course, dear Angela, very good to see you there. Um, guys, help us with the Facebook page. You know, the group gets, uh, gets all the action, but everybody forgets about the Gecko Nation Radio Facebook page. I'd like to eventually get that page up and running so we can do all kinds of cool stuff on it. Um, but everybody kind of forgets about it. And uh, I'm not going to... I'm going to put together the website in the future in the upcoming months, too, so that'll be cool. But uh, I just want to thank all of you guys for all your continued support, and I'm going to play a cool song now that when I look at Jeff, Jeff and Ronnie's boas, they're just so beautiful. So it kind of makes me think of this song. And just give me a second here to find it. And here it is. All right, everybody, check this out.
everybody. Gecko Nation, you are awesome, and I love you all. Have a good night until Sunday, and Sunday night is a very, very special interview, and it is yours truly. I will be interviewed by none other than the mean old gecko lady herself, Miss Marsha McGinnis. So be there or be square, and uh, maybe we'll do something special for that episode. i got to think about it. Hope you guys can call in and ask me some of your questions. Uh, and uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. So, all right, everybody. Until next time, Gecko Nation Radio out. <laughs>